0: Welcome to the DC Podcast, another week in American politics. I'm Stephanie March, joined by Zoe Daniel. Hello. And Brooke Wiley, our producer. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about Donald Trump. He's finally got the numbers, apparently, to clinch the nomination. A very interesting development. We're also going to be talking about something that sounds boring, but hopefully won't be when we talk about it, the down-ballot races that are happening alongside this presidential election, which uh, don't sound too interesting, but they're very important. Uh, And then we're going to talk a little bit about Virginia, the state of Virginia, giving voting rights to felons, which is something that Brooke and Zoe you guys looked into this week. So maybe starting off, Donald Trump, it looks like today, has reached the number of delegates needed to clinch the Republican nomination. 1,237 are needed. Looks like he's got 1,238 There were no primaries. There were no caucuses.
1: Zoe, how did this happen? Yeah, so essentially what's happened is that the Associated Press news agency has hit the phones and called around to the various unpledged or unbound delegates. And various states have uh, senior party members who don't have to become delegates through the primaries process. Uh, They're allowed to sort of float along at the edges and choose who who they would like to back at the conventions. So AP has hit the phones and managed to speak to some of these delegates who've said yes, we will be supporting Donald Trump. So on that basis, uh, they've got out their pens, paper and calculators and (laughs) added up his delegate numbers and he's hit 1,238. So one delegate more than required to get the automatic nomination. And, yeah, uh, you know, breaking news alerts on the phone sort of went crazyville this morning. Mm. Every single news organisation flashing Donald Trump has enough delegates to get the nomination automatically. Uh, And I went and made myself a cup of tea and sat back down (laughs) and continued my work because really it is a headline uh, but it's pretty incremental really in a process where he was already the presumptive nominee. He was going to become the official nominee at California primary and various other primaries on June the 7th. Uh, So he's just reached that threshold a little bit early and we can all um, proceed as we were.
0: Yep. Keep calm and carry on. (laughs) What do you think, Brooke? Do you think it's a bit of a game changer or it was inevitable?
2: No, I sort of thought it was the final nail in the coffin of this contested Republican convention idea that had floated around for a while. Uh, And obviously we're only a week or so away from the June 7 primaries where I think it's seven states are going to be Mm. going to the polls and that would have clinched it for him anyway. It just means we're getting there a bit sooner, a week or so sooner than we would have, is my thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I guess the question around the not contested convention as such, but the question remains around any potential third-party candidate that might be put forward by those who are still desperately Mm. trying to scrape up any method of preventing Donald Trump from getting the nomination. Uh, We've been talking to some people this week Uh, Republican delegates who were actively recruited by Ted Cruz, for example, who are now in the difficult position of having to switch over and support Donald Trump in that first ballot at the convention and simply do not want to do that Mm. uh, and are basically uh, sifting convention rules like crazy uh, to try to find a way for the Rules Committee uh, to come up with a, a method by which they can avoid voting for him at the convention. It seems like a very long shot, uh, but the way that things have played out so far, uh, I think we need to leave a little uh, a chink wiggle of, room. of wiggle room yeah. just to see what actually happens on that, that first ballot day of the convention in July.
0: That's the interesting thing about the convention, isn't it, that the party sets the rules. And I think is that they meet about a week before and they, I mean, to some extent, could throw out the rule book and, you know, get rid of this, you know, minimum Number of delegates to qualify, or minimum number of states that must be won, but that looks pretty unlikely.
1: Well, it, it seems sort of way out in left field to considering um, the fact that he is so, um, you know, definitely and decisively, uh, you know, the presumptive nominee to try to find a way to manipulate the system to prevent him from being the nominee. Uh, seems unlikely, yes. And certainly his supporters would be extremely unhappy about that. So that opens up a whole Pandora's box. Uh, But that said, yes, the Rules Committee will meet in the week immediately prior to the convention. And the rules about the rules are extremely vague. Uh, Basically, that Rules Committee has a lot of scope um, to change rules and has done so uh, prior to previous conventions. So it's more to do with uh, the party deciding as a whole um, that they have to wear Donald Trump to prevent the whole House of Cards from falling down than physically not being able to make a change to stop him.
2: I think in a few weeks ago, we talked about the bromance, you Mm. know, the Republican establishment and Trump kind of eventually coming together. It seems to me that the Never Trump movement seems to have lost some of its momentum that it had earlier on. Mm. Um, And... You know, Ted Cruz hoarding his delegates in an effort to potentially influence some sort of outcome again seems to have lost a bit of momentum now.
1: There's that. But the other thing that I think is worth keeping in mind is that many, many people within the Republican Party said very clearly that they did not want to support Donald Trump because of his rhetoric, because of his attitudes, and because of his policies, which can be very contradictory many of those people have now suddenly flip-flopped and said, actually, for the sake of the party, we Mm -hmm. will support him. Mm -hmm. And there will be people in the community who think that that says the absolute worst thing about politicians, that these people have uh, got rid of their convictions to put their support behind him for the sake of politics, not for the sake of what they originally thought was good for America. So there's a twofold problem. There's Mm. Donald Trump supporters who will be very angry if the party tries to do something to prevent him from winning, where essentially he's done it fair and square. But then there's that other layer of people in the community who will go, well, how could you have been so against him because of his comments about women, because of his comments about Muslims, because of his comments about Mexicans, and now you're suddenly supporting him? There's a, they've got a real problem, uh, a PR problem and a policy problem uh, that will haunt them for quite some time.
0: And it's also the problem of, you know, Donald Trump has run on a platform that, you know, politicians do traditionally behave like this. That's why we hate them. And now they've come into his fold. Yeah. Is it going to be
2: boring? Is
0: it it boring now? Are we still interested?
2: I think we're still interested, although, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to talk about the convention and the possibility for violence at the convention. I kind of think that what happens next, we know the numbers, we know how that sort of plays out, we can kind of guess what happens from a political perspective, but what actually happens with protesters and his supporters clashing against those people that he is so clearly offended, that I think is interesting. And we have seen violence this week. We saw it uh, in Albuquerque in New Mexico and we saw it in Anaheim as well, although it was not as bad in Anaheim as as police and the state had anticipated it could turn. Still, though, you've got a convention in Cleveland where already I think 13 groups have registered to um, have a parade, if you like, and have protests. And they're expecting that of those 13 groups, there's going to be tens of thousands of people. And they're the ones that have registered already. There's probably still many more to come. Mm. And what's going to happen when all of those people converge – on trump 's convention I, I think that's
0: and it seems like a lot of the protesters, at least the ones in New Mexico, are mainly protesting on his anti on his immigration plans and they' you know they 're sort of pro immigration and a lot of them are from migrant backgrounds. That was the same thing we saw at the Republican National Committee the other day when he was meeting for the first time with the senior leadership. Most of the protesters there were protesting specifically to his immigration platform, which is a really really emotionally charged issues so it's not really surprising I guess that it's turning it's bringing people out out the front of his rallies and they're getting violent because for them it's a case of you know being deported or getting to stay.
1: Yeah California is an interesting uh, state in that it, it is very diverse and even a couple of weeks ago we saw protests at a rally near San Francisco uh, and many of the protesters were waving Mexican flags. Mm -hmm. And to some extent he's fanned that um, within his rallies when protesters appear. He's called out, are you from Mexico? Mm. Uh, That's pandering to uh, his support base who support his immigration policies and therefore fanning that that opposition. Uh, As Brooke says, the convention itself will be interesting in that 50,000 people are expected anyway Uh, You then add, you know, a few thousand protesters uh, and a lot of law enforcement. Uh, That is going to be quite interesting. I mean, I think we have to be sort of clear in saying that the protests so far... Uh, other than probably the early one in Chicago, mm-hmm. have been relatively small scale. Mm-hmm. The TV pictures are good, uh, but <laughs> they when you actually look, look at it... I mean, yesterday there was a couple of dozen protesters throwing rocks at uh, police on horses, uh, and they had that under control fairly rapidly. That could be quite different if we start talking about thousands of people. Uh, but that said... The convention itself will be locked down with multiple perimeters within an inch of its life. So the protests themselves will probably be having some distance, happening some distance from the actual action yeah, right. inside the convention hall.
0: Mm. Let's park Donald Trump there for another week and look to another issue in the current election season. So now it looks like we've got Donald Trump locked in as the nominee in terms of numbers. Hillary Clinton is very much on track to get there. But there's another interesting bunch of races going on that aren't for the White House called the down-ballot races uh, at the same time. The presidency obviously is the most important roll-up for grabs this year, but it's not the only one. There are House and Senate seats that will be decided too and they could be pretty important. We're joined now by Louis Jacobson, who's a senior correspondent at PolitiFact, a fact-checking website and a contributor to many, many, other political news outlets Lou thanks for joining us thank you can you tell us and just explain for us what are the down ballot races and what's at stake this year
3: sure well there's a whole combination of them first of all you've got various congressional races the entire House of Representatives which is the larger chamber is up this year uh, every two years and one-third of the Senate um, which is 33 34 seats are also up this year so those, those are the other federal seats. That, that's uh, for the federal government. There are also a lot of contests for the states, uh, too. Um, there's about a dozen or more uh, gubernatorial races. Those, those, are, those are the state governors, the head of each state. And you've got many states uh, have voting this fall for the state House and state Senate, which are the sort of equivalent of, of, of the Congress on the state level. So uh, lots and lots of stuff is, is definitely on the ballot for this year.
1: And Lou, if we could look at the House and Senate races specifically, Barack Obama's been dealing with a hostile Congress for much of his presidency. Are these uh, down-ballot elections likely to change the dynamic?
3: Very good question. So a lot will obviously depend on how the presidential race goes, because the winner of the presidential race tends to have what's called a coattail effect. It's where they bring various down-ballot offices along with them if they're successful at the ballot box
2: in the senate
3: which is probably the most closely watched group of elections this this uh, year except for the presidency the senate is key because it's pretty close uh, breakdown right now between the two parties and the democrats have um... a pretty good structural opportunity this fall structural i mean that by chance, the seats that are being contested, those uh, 30-odd seats that are being contested, a majority of those, pretty strong majority, are actually held by the Republicans. So that means that the Republicans will have to play defense, and the Democrats can go more on offense. The other factor, which is important for the Senate and for other uh, uh, contests, is that the turnout patterns tend to be different in a presidential year versus a midterm election. The presidency is voted on every four years, including this this year. In the middle two years, um, there are the midterm elections which are just congressional and the president is not on the ballot. Why that's important is that historically the Democrats have had kind of a larger but not necessarily likely to turn out base of voters. And those voters are are more likely to turn out in the presidential year because it's such a big deal. And they tend not to turn out to the same degree, at least, um, in the midterm years. And because the sort of historical pattern is that the Republicans have a smaller, perhaps, but certainly more diehard base, they are more likely to turn out in the midterm years. Now, this is a longstanding pattern, but it's been particularly true the past couple of
2: cycles. Lou, what's your take on a candidate like Donald Trump, who is a, a non-establishment figure, if you like, for the Republicans? We've seen a number of very senior Republicans, probably Senator John McCain is the most high profile of those, who has um, expressed concern that a Trump candidate for presidency could impact his own race for the Senate. Do you think there's merit in that? Do you think we're going to see a very different outcome from what we may have seen in more establishment-like figures in previous years?
3: Um, I think that's definitely a possibility. I would not say we know enough at this point to know for sure if that's the case. Um, A couple weeks ago, I would have thought uh, perhaps it would be more likely that, that Trump would cause some problems down ballot for the other Republicans. I think now with Trump pulling, uh, closer to even in the polls nationally, uh, I think we have to, to sort of be a little more cautious right now before we assume that's going to be the case. Trump has benefited, um, in the polls because he has cleared the field. He, he is now the un, unquestioned nominee and, uh, I think a lot of Republican voters are falling in line, even if they may have had some reservations about him in the primary season, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, who's still fighting, um, even though she is expected to win, likely to win. She is still fighting um, uh, a campaign against Bernie Sanders um, that's been fairly resistant to actually ending. So the conventional wisdom is that uh, the sort of bump which Donald Trump has enjoyed in the past couple of weeks um, is something which Clinton can look forward to uh, once. Her uh, primary campaign is over, probably in a couple
0: of weeks. What's well, to keep an eye on. Lou Jacobson, thank you so much for your time. Thank uh, you. We'll probably check in with you down the
3: track. Sounds
0: good. So another interesting issue that's come up in the last couple of weeks is in America, obviously it's not compulsory voting, um, and it's not always that easy to be able to vote even when you're able to, but there is hundreds of thousands of people who can't vote because they're ex-felons. And you guys went to Virginia where they've just changed the rules. Tell us a little bit about what they've done in Virginia.
2: Right. So we piled into our compact high car uh, (laughs) with Brad and Zoe, of course, and went down to Virginia to talk to uh, a bunch of people about this new law which the governor in Virginia uh, has passed. It's an executive order which restores the right to vote for some 206,000 ex-felons in the state. And Virginia was one of 12 states which had basically suspended the right to vote for anyone who had been a felon, unless they were individually pardoned by the governor, which is prohibitive in lots of different ways. So anyway, the governor decided to sign an executive order which would allow those people to vote, and it has been quite politically contentious for a couple of reasons – one of those reasons is that it's a Republican-controlled legislature, and he has done this at an executive level. So there's questions around whether he has overstepped his executive authority. It's also contentious because of the politics at play here. He is very—he's uh, widely known to have ties to the Clintons. He worked with them at the Clinton Foundation. He's a fundraiser for the Clintons, and the sort of kind of cynical political mm. argument is that the reason he has done this is because the vast majority of felons are African-American and we know that African-American voters tend to vote Democrat and Virginia is a swing state. So that's sort of one element of the argument. The other is that the Democrats say, well, we have a long history in Virginia of suppressing black voices in this state. And by denying these people who have completed their passage through the justice system a right to vote, we're essentially silencing their voices, and those voices are overwhelmingly black.
1: It's interesting when you look at the numbers across America, there's actually almost six million people who cannot vote because they are former felons. Uh, and in many states, even if you're on parole, or as Brooke says, your sentence is complete, you will never be able to vote again. Right. Uh, and in Virginia... Uh, Barack Obama uh, won that swing state by, I think it was about 150,000 votes. So now you have 206,000 felons with potential to vote, many of whom will vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, so keep keep that in mind. But also if you look even way back to uh, George, Bush, George W. Bush winning the election back in 2000, uh, which came down to Florida, uh, and was ended up ended up being won by a few hundred votes, votes yeah. where there were six hundred thousand felons who were unable to vote in that election so the point is that uh, the fact that these people can 't vote may well be skewing political results uh, and it's a very interesting issue in terms of politics, Uh, but certainly the former felons that we spoke to were extremely excited Mm. to have their rights back and really value that and will be taking very seriously how they exercise those rights and um, very much felt that it was returning something to them after they've made a big mistake in their life, they've paid their dues uh, and that they've in some ways returned their self esteem and their their value uh, by being given the vote back.
2: I think it's like a really interesting moral question, right? I mean, we talked a bit about the Democrat argument for that, and that's that ultimately, uh, without this executive order, we're suppressing black votes or black voices. But from the Republican side, there is a moral argument, which they say, well, if you didn't respect the law in the first place, and you you know, were charged with a felony and sentenced. I mean, if you've been charged with a felony or if you have a felony conviction in Virginia, it's not unpaid parking tickets. It's a serious crime. So if you didn't respect the law, then what gives you the right to either impact the law or make a decision about the law from a referendum or indirectly by electing lawmakers who presumably align with your values? The other question I think that is probably a broader debate which is not going to happen in this instance they'll stick to the partisan politics on it but I think that there is a question about what the purpose is of the justice system in Virginia if incarceration is designed to be punitive mm. and rehabilitative then you shouldn't then if the justice system has done its work mm. it the burden shouldn't be on the individual to prove that they have reformed and mm-hmm. that they can be a participating member of society. If you think that the justice system is designed to be entirely punitive and to be a deterrent, then, yeah, the individual does need to make a case for why they have changed and why they should be able to participate. And that's obviously not going to be debated, no. I think, does it, in the Republicans say
1: that the uh, right to vote should be given back on a case-by-case basis rather than on a blanket basis. Um, And that's really at the crux of the legal action that they've now lodged, um, as far as I know, in the Supreme Court against the governor's action on this. And the other thing that's slightly uh, outside of this is that the governor is now being investigated over political donations um, and that may well be separate issue or somehow linked with the fact that he has issued this executive order, which perhaps has um, opened the door for some pressure to be put on him in a different manner.
2: Mm. I That's mean, tricky. this this debate probably isn't over just yet in a sense that... Um, if the courts rush through a decision on this, which they probably will because of the timeliness factor, obviously a decision needs to be made before November, before these felons could vote in the general election. Well, uh, you know, the the courts could decide he overstepped his authority and that's that. Another governor could repeal it. It's sort of not a settled issue in many many ways, even though this executive order has been done.
0: Something to keep our eyes on. I think that's it for another week. Any final thoughts? Anyone?
2: You're going to California? I'm going to California. We'll
0: look forward to to your detailed analysis. I know, that's next week. (laughs) Uh, My final thought is Barack Obama is going to be my near (laughs) neighbour. Not that near, but kind of near. We now know where him and Michelle and the kids are moving. They're moving to a, a. Pretty big mansion. Well, it's not gigantic, but a nice big house. Well, it's in eight, eight
1: point five DC. bathrooms. Yeah. Eight point five bathrooms, <laughs>
0: nine bedrooms. So yep. maybe we, we could ask for a bit of a sleepover. I don't know. Anyway, so that's <laughs> we now know they're staying in Washington, uh, so the kids can finish school and they'll be living nearby. So I may change my running route so I can go there and maybe catch a glimpse. But that's all <laughs> for now, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks.